So um, as you're turning there, um, have you ever been given an assignment, been given a project, been given a task to accomplish? And, and from the start, the, the person assigning you that task, uh, giving you that project says, but you're going to meet resistance. There's going to be opposition. There, there's people who are not going to want to see this completed. You ever been there? I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe not because maybe they would feel like they're setting you up for failure. I, I don't know. But put yourself in that shoes. Would you go about doing it? How would you feel if, if you were told, go do this, but you're going to meet opposition? How would you feel? Now, some of you, you're, you're stubborn enough that you would do it anyway. You're like, opposition, bring it on, right? But then when you met the opposition, you have no tools to do anything with it. You just have to meet it head on and try to figure your way through it. You know, as people who followed followers of Jesus, Jesus has given us an assignment. He's given us a mission to accomplish. And he has told us ahead of time that there will be opposition. There will be people who don't want to hear this, who don't want to respond to this, who don't want you to do this. And if they persecuted Jesus, they're going to persecute you. But here's the difference. Even though you will meet opposition, the thing that Jesus left us with with all authority has been given to me under heaven and on earth. So therefore I say go. A spirit-empowered mission will receive spirit-filled ministry in the face of spirit-rejecting opposition. We have been given the tool that we need in the face of opposition to accomplish the mission that Jesus has sent us on. That's what we're going to see this morning in the the book of Acts chapter 13. A spirit-empowered mission will receive spirit-filled ministry in the face of spirit-rejecting opposition. And we're going to break those apart as we go through that this morning. But we continue on the book of Acts chapter 13, and we're going to revisit a church that we looked at a couple weeks ago, a church in Antioch. You remember that Saul, after he's been converted, one of the places he spent some of his time was in Antioch. And so we get back to there now. Luke brings us back to there. So here's where we're going to start. The Spirit empowers you to pursue the mission of God. As we read these verses, we're going to be seeing how how the Spirit has set aside Saul and Barnabas. But here's what I want you to know this morning. The Spirit has empowered you as well. The Spirit has empowered you to pursue the mission of God. All followers of Jesus have been empowered by the Spirit, commissioned by the Spirit to go and pursue the mission of God. And so here's where we see verse 1. Now, there were these prophets and teachers in the church at Antioch. So there's two groups that we're looking at here. There's a group of prophets and there's a group of teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius the Cyrenian, Menean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch from childhood, and Saul. Now, stop there a minute. That's a diverse group of people right there. So we've got in this group, we've got Jews, Barnabas, and Saul, We've got Africans, dark-skinned men, Simeon called Niger. We've got some socially uh, higher class people. If you you think about socially, where are they financially? Not that that the church necessarily recognized that, but you've got someone who was close to Herod, the Tetrarch. Now, that's the same Herod, by the way, that beheaded John the Baptist. That's the same Herod you read about in Jesus' birth. And, and the way that he, this guy described uh, a close friend of, of, of Herod, some translations capture a friend, some translations capture a family relation. What's most likely is that he was the, the adopted or the foster brother. He was raised in the same house. Think Moses and Pharaoh 
how Moses was brought in and he was raised in the house of Pharaoh. It's similar to that kind of relationship. This guy was close to Herod. Now, now think about that for a minute. You've got gathered together worshiping in one local church setting. You've got Jews and non-Jews. Okay, that right there, those two groups together, that's, that's a miracle. Okay, those two groups together, they, they didn't worship in the past. Jews didn't associate with non-Jews like that because to be in association was to defile yourself, to make you unclean. Think about this, the, the, the racial ethnicity and the diversity that's there. So your Jews and your non-Jews, you would have had some there, but then throw in an African in the mix there. And then think about the different social settings you've got. You've got people who were farmers, fishermen, people who were trained as, as uh, Jewish leaders in the religious uh, world like Paul, uh, Saul. And then you've got people who are raised in the house of a king. This church at Antioch represents what a local church should look like when it comes to its diversity. It's a great example of how in Christ, how the mystery of Christ is that he brings all these groups of people together that normally would not associate. You step foot outside of a church setting and a lot of these people wouldn't be associating together. Just like when you step foot out of this setting on Sunday morning, some of you will, would likely not be associating in your work worlds, in your school worlds. But because you have Christ in common... That makes all the difference. And a local church should represent the diversity of its surrounding community. And so when I say something like that, a local church, I mean like us gathered here today, First Baptist El Reno, Wesley United Methodist, First Christian Church, Life Church, whatever. I mean, those are local church gatherings. And when we gather, we represent just part of the body of Christ. And in each of these local gatherings, you've got a mixture. You've got some people who have trusted in Christ and you've got some people who have not. And you've got some people who know they have trusted in Christ and they're walking in that assurance of that. And then you've got other people who think they've trusted in Christ, but they're struggling and they're doubting. And then you've got some people who, have, who, who think they've trusted in Christ, but they really haven't. But they don't know that. They think they have. That's a dangerous spot to be in. And then you've got those people who know, I've not trusted in Christ, but I'm here. For, for some reason, I'm here, but I've not trusted in Christ. Every local church has got that mix of people. And a local church should represent the diversity of the surrounding community. If a local church does not represent the diversity of that surrounding community, some things need to be done. That church either needs to be reaching out into its community, or it needs to move its community, in which case I'd say just close the doors. Because if you're willing to move out of a community because you don't want to reach the people around you, you might as well just close your doors because you're not going to do anyone any good to just pick up, move, and then continue with your exclusive group. A church should represent the diversity of community. Now, you know, as well as I do, some communities are more diverse than others. You go to Oklahoma City, and Frontline Church is going to have a whole lot more diversity. Life Church is going to have a whole lot more diversity than, say, churches in El Reno, Calumet, Hinton, Minko. Because the diversity is just different in those, the, the, those more metro areas. But every local church should represent the diversity in its community. And listen, we're pursuing that. We're pursuing that. Part of having uh, this pastor of Hispanic ministries in Joel and pursuing some of the uh, Spanish-speaking ministries is we recognize in our surrounding communities we've got people who speak a different language that most of us don't speak. We've got people who look differently, have different backgrounds and cultures than, than we have, and they're in our community 
and we want to pursue them as well. Many of them might already be believers, but maybe they don't have a good church to go to, a church that's preaching the gospel. Maybe they don't have options, so we want to provide that for them as well. And listen, as we grow in our diversity, the goal is not to keep us separate. The goal is however we can, we want to intermingle. We want to integrate. Our goal is not to be two churches just sharing a building. We want to be one church with with maybe two congregations that at times need to separate because of language barriers, because of maybe some cultural barriers, but wherever possible, we're going to be pursuing integration so that we are mixing in and that we have a better representation of what the body of Christ should look like. Antioch is a great example of that diversity, both ethnically and socially. We go on in verse 2. While they were serving the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after they had fasted and prayed and placed their hands on them, they sent them off. So you've got this group uh, gathered together at the church of Antioch and they're, they're worshiping, they're serving, they're using, they're gifting, they're prophesying, they're teaching. And while they are going about doing that, don't miss that. While they are going about worshiping, while they are going about serving, while they are operating in their gifting, the Spirit speaks to them. And there's going to be some things as we go through the book of Acts that I continue to just kind of point out, but maybe don't spend a whole lot of time on it. just want to say, hey, take notice of this. Look how matter-of-factly, again, Luke just says, and the Spirit spoke to them. Like, if you and I were writing this today, we'd stop right there and go, wait a minute, like, what do you mean speak? Like, how did he speak? Like, did he, did he audibly speak? Did he show up in some kind of person? Did he speak through the Scripture? Keep in mind, they didn't have a New Testament like you and I have. It was being written, right? They might have had access to some Old Testament scriptures. We'd, we'd pause right there, but Luke just goes, and the Spirit spoke to him. Just like he's done this entire time through Acts, and the Spirit spoke to them. Listen, God still speaks today. Yes, primarily, he speaks through his word. He has revealed his, himself in his word, in the scripture, and he speaks through that. And that's objective, right? That, that, we can sit down and we can study the scripture, and if we're both going about it with the same type of hermeneutic or the same approach to studying the scripture, we'll likely come to the same conclusions. But listen, God still speaks in subjective ways as well. And that makes some of us a little uncomfortable. Because, because now I lose control of what God might be saying. But God's spirit is not bound by you and I's limitations. God's spirit still speaks and he still guides and he still gives specific instructions to specific people at specific times. And, and he does that and he does it however he wants, whenever he wants, to whomever he wants. The question is, do you have a life that is postured in worship to where you would be prepared to hear him when he speaks? Because I think sometimes we read this and we go, I've never heard the Spirit speak. I've never had some kind of prompting. I've never felt so clear and sure that that was the Spirit. And perhaps it's one because we don't know God's voice. Listen, you won't be able to discern the Spirit speaking to you if you don't know God's voice as it's been revealed in Scripture. You've got to know His character so that you can discern whether or not that's Him actually speaking to you. Because guess what? There's other things that speak as well. And you've got to know the character of your God. You've got to know, know, know what he's like, how he acts, how he has acted, so that you know, if this is him speaking, I need to be able to discern, does that line up with who he is and who he's been revealed to be? Perhaps you don't know the voice of God, and that's why you haven't heard the Spirit speak or guide you. Or perhaps it's because your lives are too noisy. Maybe we don't have space 
in our lives. Maybe there's too much noise. There's too much busyness. We don't slow down. We don't stay attuned enough to know if God's guiding us, if God's leading us in one of those ways that might be more subjective. God still speaks like this. Some of you have experienced it. Some of you haven't. But just because you haven't experienced it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Instead, as I read through the book of Acts and I see Luke just matter-of-factly stated, I'm going, okay, well, well, what do I need to be aware of? Is there something in my life that's preventing me from hearing God if he wants to speak to me in another way? And I'm going to keep reading the scripture. And I'm going to keep learning who God is. And I'm going to keep listening for what he reveals to me in his scripture. Because you know what? And I'm, I'm just going to make up a statistic right now, but I'm a ballpark it. And you know what they say about statistics? Like 47% of statistics are made up, right? Right? Okay. So about 95% of what God reveals for us is already written in his word. Like we go about our lives and we're saying, God, what do you want me to do with my life? What do you want me to do with my life? But we've never read the scripture. And God, God if, if you would hear him speaking to you, he'd say, read that first. Like, just start there and obey it. Pick a page. Just pick one page and try to obey that. Just try to obey that and follow through on that. God has revealed so much in the scripture about how he wants us to live our lives, how he wants us to pursue him, how he wants us to relate to him. And if we don't start there, then we're gonna miss what he's saying to us. While they were serving the Lord and fasting. And the other thing I wanna just point out is, look, it's just, it's just assumed They were fasting. It was part of their regular worship. Now look, Christians in the New Testament are never commanded to fast, but there are times where it's assumed that they do, and it's recommended at times that when you fast, here's how you do it. Listen, fasting is something that you should consider as part of your worship. Whether that's regular, whether that's intermittent, you should consider fasting. And we, uh, back in January, we started the year off with a church-wide fast. Fasting is a way where you deprive yourself of something. Now, typically food, and if you're able to do food, do food, okay? But some of you, you, you may not be able to do food because there's health reasons and stuff like that, and that's fine. So then fasting is depriving yourself of something that you've come to depend on, that you've come to really lean on. You deprive yourself to the point of discomfort so that you attune yourself to the Lord instead. You remove something and you create a pain in your life, a discomfort, so that in the midst of that, as you're feeling that pain, so if I'm fasting and I'm feeling that hunger pains, it's a reminder to me, I I don't live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And I go to the Lord instead and and I use that time instead to pursue him. I pray, I read the scriptures. There may be seasons where you fast. Maybe as you're making decisions, you want to fast as you're leading up to that decision. Or maybe you're really beseeching the Lord. That's a, that's a, a church word to say. I'm really asking of him. It's King James word. And it just, I'm asking of him, Lord, I really want this. I really desire this. Maybe you fast then. Lindsay and I have, have done that at times where we're trying to make decisions or there's something we really want and we really desire. And so we'll fast and we'll pray in doing that. I would encourage you to consider how can you make fasting part of your regular worship? Regular meaning whether that's weekly, monthly, intermittently, however. But don't, don't, don't dismiss that tool of worship. And so they were worshiping and fast, fasting. Set apart Barnabas and Saul. So set these two men apart for the work to which I've called them. And then after they had fasted and prayed, again, so they're taking this seriously. They fast, they pray, they place their hands on them. Now you've seen us do this, where we place our hand, we bring people up, whether it's a, a mission team or it's deacons or, or somebody, and we, we, we're ordaining someone and we put our hands on them. And what we're doing in doing that is we're, we're, it's symbolic, right? So there's no power necessarily in my hand or in anyone else's hand. But as we're doing that, we're putting our hands on them and we're, we're symbolically commissioning them. 
We're, we're sending them out for whatever it is they've been called to, whether that's a mission trip, whether that's a ministry of sorts. And that's what they do. They bring Saul and Barnabas and they put their hands on them and they pray for them and they are sent off. God has commissioned us on a spirit-empowered mission. Don't miss this. So we're reading about Saul and Barnabas. But remember Jesus' words to the, his followers right as he left. All authority under heaven and earth has been given to me. So therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. It's Matthew 28. Remember how Luke in his book of Acts started out in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus was telling his followers, hey, stay in Jerusalem and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. You will go and tell people about me. You will point people to me. We have received a spirit-empowered mission as well. But on that mission, we will encounter spiritual opposition. And so we keep reading in verse 4, and so Barnabas and Saul, sent out by the Holy Spirit, again, look at the role of the Spirit in this. The Spirit speaks and set them apart, and then in verse 4 we get, so they're being sent out by the Spirit. Jesus continues his ministry here on earth through his church, and he does it at the hands of the Spirit of God. So they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Cyprus is an island in the Mediterranean Sea. When they arrived in Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. Now they also had John as their assistant. John, also called Mark, by the way, the Gospel of Mark, he's the guy that penned that. And so they set out, they've been commissioned, they go to this island down south into the Mediterranean Sea, and they start by proclaiming the word of God at the Jewish synagogue. But this trip is largely going to be a trip where they're taking the gospel to Gentiles. This is going to be the start where the book of Acts now is going to start to focus its ministry on the, the Gentiles at this point. And so Peter starts to fade to the background and the ministry to the Jews and the church in Jerusalem starts to fade to the background. And now we're going to start to hone in and really finish the rest of the book as the, the gospel spreads to the other outer parts of the earth, to the Gentiles. But they start here, and you're going to notice this with, with Saul. Anywhere he goes, if he can, he starts with the Jews. Why? Because Jesus came, and the gospel is for the Jews first, and then the Gentiles. And Paul writes the book of Romans, and he says in, in Romans, as he's talking about God's plan for Israel, God still has a plan for physical Israelites, but it's been put on hold right now. But Paul says in there, I wish that I could make them so jealous that they would turn. And so he magnifies his ministry to the, to the Gentiles in hopes, he says, that the, my Jewish brothers would see that and be jealous for what God is doing among the Gentiles. Paul, anywhere he's going to go, is going to start with the Jews. And that's what he does here. And he's going to face some opposition. Let's keep going. Verse 6. When they had crossed over the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. Stop there for a minute. So Paul, as they're traveling across this island, making their way across the island, and they're proclaiming the gospel, along the way, they come across this magician. A guy named Bar-Jesus, son of Joshua, basically is how it would translate. Don't think magician like David Copperfield or Dynamo or David Payne. Those are like modern-day illusionists, right? Don't think trick of the hand. No, no. You think sorcery. Think witchcraft. This is real stuff. This is not a guy going around doing card tricks. This is not a guy doing Houdini escapes. 
This is a guy who's empowered by demons and he's doing things that are supernatural, but he's doing them by the power of Satan. And he's doing them in a way that is leading people away from God and distracting them from the gospel. This stuff is real. It's why you should not mess with it. It's why you go to palm readers. And yeah, a lot of them are shysters. And man, I don't even use that word. But you know what I'm talking about. Scammers, you know. I'm just, all of a sudden, I just like jumped a couple generations, you know. <laughs> they, 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 they have tricks. And, and some of them may actually be supernaturally empowered by demons. And they might actually be getting information about you from some, some thing that is outside of this realm. Or, or Ouija boards, right? I mean, it's all fun. I grew up doing Ouija boards at, at, at sleepovers. And look, you're trying to conjure up the dead. And you're trying to conjure up spirits. That stuff is real. Like, you don't want to play with that kind of stuff. You don't want to open the door with that kind of stuff because you know what? Yeah, there's always that friend who's going to be moving it. Like, um, I don't even remember how, what the phrasing is, but you ask a question and, you know, you're asking about some boy, who do I like? And some, somebody in the group's moving it and spelling that boy's name. Yeah, there's that kind of stuff, but there's, there's access that can be given there to real spiritual powers and demons that are opposed to God. And listen, we live in a world that, that we would describe, would describe as post-enlightenment, the enlightenment period in the 1800s where the scientific method was really elevated and reason, human reason was really elevated. And so if you can understand something, if you can reason about it, it's true, it exists. But if you can't reason it or, or think about it logically, it's not real. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, exist. And so the Trinity, God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that's denied because that doesn't make any sense. Also spiritual powers, another realm Denied because I can't see it. I can't objectively observe it. I can't validate it. But listen, that's foolishness. And that's, that's just a trick of the enemy pulling some blinders over our eyes so that we will ignore the things that happen. This kind of stuff happens. Now, some of you have been to other countries and you've seen this. Some of you have heard stories from people from other countries who have seen things that are supernatural but they are not of God. Don't discount this just because you've not experienced it or you don't think you have. Listen, sometimes spiritual opposition comes in the form of apathy. Where you've got, you've got something working, some demon perhaps working, to just keep you distracted by all the toys, the busyness, the anxiety, whatever it is. Some of those things that we write off may actually be spiritual oppression keeping you distracted from turning to the Lord. That's what's going on here. We've got this magician. And he's hanging around this pro-council of the, uh, the, the, uh, the island. He's like a governor, if you will. And the governor actually has interest. So pick up in the middle of verse 7 there. The proconsul summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. Do you see that? He wanted to hear the word of God. They've been traveling across this island. He's starting to get word that these guys are traveling around. They're proclaiming the word of God. He wants to hear it. And look at the response now. But the magician, verse 8, Eliamus, for that is the way his name is translated, opposed them, trying to turn the proconsul away from the faith. We've been commissioned and empowered on a, on a spirit-empowered mission by God, but there will be spiritual opposition. This magician is trying to do all that he can to keep Barnabas and Saul from proclaiming the word to the governor. And listen, behind that, I have no doubt, behind that is some agent of Satan working because that guy is a high official. 
That guy's in a position of power, a position of influence. And he's trying to keep him from hearing the word to turn him away from the faith. You will, you will experience spiritual opposition if you are operating in that mission. And that's what's going on here. They're facing some opposition. Now, some of you know what this is like. Some of you don't. Some of you have been operating in this mission. You've been pursuing this mission of God. You've been out there proclaiming the gospel. You've done it with your family. You've done it with your friends and your workplace. Some of you currently, weekly, are going door to door in our communities, our neighborhoods. And some of you have been insulted. You've been cut off by your family. You've been, you've been insulted by people in the community. You know, uh, Joel and Carmen and, and, and a few of you guys have been out in our community. And talking to Joel, he's facing opposition, being insulted, called names. I mean, it's so childish. I mean, the stuff that he's being called. But listen, he's out there proclaiming the gospel, and Satan's going to use whatever he can to try to discourage. Some of you have experienced that as well. As you go out and you're trying to pursue this mission of God, and maybe it's a family member, maybe it's in your own household, maybe it's in your extended family, maybe it's in your workplace, and you've, you've been looking for opportunities to try to share the gospel with someone, to, 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 oh, to have an open door, but it just seems like there's always a distraction. It seems like maybe someone else has been discouraging you from doing that. Listen, don't write that off. If you are pursuing the mission of God, you will face spiritual opposition. But as Paul says in Ephesians, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Don't look at those people calling you names. Don't look at those people who have cut you off. Don't look at those people who are insulting you and think they're the enemy. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers and authorities. It's against spiritual things. It's just manifesting itself in a way that you can see and experience in this realm. But if you pursue the mission of God, a spirit-empowered mission, you will face spiritual opposition. Expect it. And don't stop when you face it. Don't stop when you get discouraged. Don't stop because someone insults you. Don't stop because someone says, no, I don't want to hear that. Don't stop because you get cut off from your family. Continue to pursue with love, with grace, with humility. Because it's just what Jesus experienced himself. And as you follow Jesus, you're going to experience the very same things that he experienced. Count that a blessing, a joy, to be able to suffer in similar ways that Jesus suffered. So they face spiritual opposition. But if we operate in the power of, the, of a spirit-filled ministry, we have tools to overcome that opposition. So God has commissioned us on a spirit-empowered mission. We will face spiritual opposition, but we've got to operate in a power, in power of a spirit-filled ministry. And here's how that played out in Paul's case, Saul's case. But Saul, also known as Paul. Okay, stop there. Now you're going to get to know why I keep slipping up and calling him Paul. You guys, start, some of you already knew this. Here's the first place Saul is called Paul. Did you realize that? Look how subtly and just nonchalantly it slipped in. But Saul, also known as Paul, and then goes forward. And from then on, for the most part, he's called Paul, except in a few cases. Every one of the letters he writes, it's Paul. Saul, Paul, same guy. Listen, it was common to have multiple names in this day. Paul, or Saul, Saul was a Jew. So he had a Jewish name that he would have used among Jewish people. The name is Saul. 
named after the first Jewish king from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And so when he was among Jews and he was ministering among Jews, he would use his Jewish name, Saul. But Saul was also a Roman citizen. And he would therefore have had a Roman name or a Greek name, Paulos, Paul. And so when he's among non-Jewish people, among Greeks or people who are part of the Roman Empire, he would use his Roman name, Paul. And guess what? Paul is commissioned as the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he spends a lot of his time among non-Jewish people. So therefore, he's known as Paul. And that's all it is. That's all Luke gives us is, by the way, he's also known as Paul. Although it would make for a great sermon to be able to say, and God changed his name when God got a hold of his life. Nowhere in scripture do we get that. Nowhere. Now, God does that. Did it for Abraham? Abram to Abraham. Did it for Jacob? Jacob to Israel. Did it for Sarah? Sarai to Sarah. God does do that. But we don't have that with Paul. That's not, that's not the, the, the information we're given. All we're told is, by the way, he's also known as this. And so when, when he's around certain, certain uh, groups of people, he would use the most appropriate name. And that was a common practice. Saul, also known as Paul. So I'm sorry to ruin some, some, any favorite sermons you might have had on that. That's not the case here. But Paul is still a great person whose life has been changed by God and it doesn't take a name change to do that. So Paul, but Saul, also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at him and said, you who are full of all deceit and all wrongdoing, you son of the devil. I love that. <laughs> You know, because he's just repeating something Jesus said when Jesus was one day looking at some Pharisees and he says, you are of your father, the devil. That's why you lie all the time. I mean, it's just, he's just following the steps of Jesus. He says, hey, you who will not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Now look, the hand of the Lord is against you and you will be blind, unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mistiness and darkness came over him, and he went around seeking people to lead him by the hand. So here's what we've got happening. So Paul becomes filled with the Spirit. Now, we've talked about this a few times in the book of Acts. You've got baptism, and you've got filling. Spirit baptism, that one-time act where, where the Spirit connects us with Christ. It's a moment of conversion where the Spirit connects us to Jesus, joins us to Jesus. The relationship is so real that we have with Jesus now that we are described as being in Jesus, that we are described as being part of his body. That's baptism that does that. And we picture that when we do water baptisms. We picture that, that, that dying to our, the, the, uh, the sin, power of sin in our life and then raising to new life in Christ and being connected with Christ. We picture that by water baptism. Happens one time when you're converted. May or may not come with some kind of experiential experiences. Some kind of sensational experience. May or may not. Filling, however, is something that is continuously available from the Spirit. It is something where as we pursue the Lord, as we try to live our lives in a way that aligns with the Lord and as by God's grace, the Spirit, then it fills us. God, by God's grace, he empowers us with his Spirit. Filling is the idea of being controlled by, being influenced by. As we come under the control, under the influence of the Spirit, we are empowered to accomplish that which God wants us to accomplish. Whether that's some kind of uh, um, miraculous thing like Paul's going to do here, whether that's living out his word in the midst of a context that's hostile, whether that's remaining faithful in the midst of persecution, whether that's remaining a steadfast amidst all these unbelievers maybe in your family, it doesn't always have to be on the sensational level, but anytime the Spirit is influencing and controlling you, that's sensational. 
right? But we tend to think it's only when people break out in, in miraculous things. The spirit filling is something that is offered continuously to us. It's how we are to operate in the Christian life. Listen, you and I are not supposed to go on this mission by God, live our lives pursuing the mission of God in our own power. If you are, you will fail. You will fail because you were never meant to do it in your own power. But God, by his power, will empower us and enable us to accomplish that which he sets out to accomplish. And he does that for us by filling us with the Spirit. And so Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, he looks at this guy and he rebukes him, calls him out, and then calls down blindness on him. Now, that may or may not be something you do one day, okay? I mean, I think you need to go before the Lord and ask him if that's something you, you were supposed to do, right? Paul clearly had some guidance that he was operating on. So I don't recommend that you and I go around and, and when we're sharing the gospel and someone, uh, someone rejects us, I don't recommend your default responses, well, I call down blindness upon you, right? Okay, because that may not happen in your case. In fact, it may just hurt the, the, the witness in that case. But Paul clearly had some kind of communication. The Spirit was guiding. The Spirit told him or something. He knew this is what he needed to do. And it it was obviously from the Lord because it happened after he said it, right? So he calls down blindness and the man goes blind. Temporarily. Temporarily. The guy who was operating in spiritual darkness now must operate in physical darkness. And sometimes that's so that we have time to repent. Sometimes God does things in our lives, allows things in, brings things in that stop us, slow us down so that we will consider him. Consider the life that we're living and the direction that it's going. And we get frustrated by it sometimes. We get frustrated by by our our progress being hindered or, or, or coming up against some kind of physical limitation, but sometimes God puts that there with a very specific purpose to turn us toward him. And we don't know if that happened in this guy's case. We know his blindness is temporary. And Paul, by the power of the Spirit, put that on him. And here's the response. Verse 12. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. Because he was greatly astounded at the teaching about the Lord. He did not believe and was converted by a miracle, okay? Like, he didn't see this happen and that converted him. We are not converted by miracles. We are not converted by seeing God do something. We are converted as we respond to the word of God, the gospel, and the spirit makes us new. And that was there because it, it goes on and explains that we, he was greatly astounded at the teaching about the Lord. And so that gospel message coupled with the miracle, and we've seen that happen in Acts, where, where the, the message is being spread and then a miracle takes place and people respond because that miracle was used by God in that instance to validate the message or the messenger. And then there's other times you recall we've seen, we've seen miracles used to gather a crowd and then the message was presented and people believe. God does whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. And listen, I know some of you in here, this is how God worked in your life. You heard the gospel. You'd heard it. And then God did something miraculous. And then that's what he used to bring you to himself. This still happens. It still happens. Do you remember the prayer they prayed in Acts 4? Embolden us to continue to speak the message 
of Christ. And then among them, they said, and stretch out your hand and do wonderful things, miraculous things. The church was praying at this time, God, continue to embolden us to speak. And as we speak, do miraculous things. God still does that. But we don't ask for it very often. Maybe because we don't believe he does it still. Maybe because we're afraid of looking foolish. Maybe because we're afraid that if we ask for it, God won't do it. Listen, God can defend himself. It's not our job to defend God. But God used in this case for the governor, this proconsul, as he saw this man, this magician struck blind and he had considered the word of the Lord, he put those two together and God used those two to bring about faith in this man's life. And the spiritual opposition was overcome by a spirit-filled ministry. Listen, as you and I pursue the mission of God, we will come up against spiritual opposition and we will not defeat it in our own strength. You can't. Like there's people in the book of Acts that's coming up where we're gonna read about them and they're gonna try to, to go up against spiritual opposition in their own strength and they get beat up. Like they get jumped near death because these, these, these demons, they speak to these people and we say, we know Paul, we know Jesus, we even know Peter, but who are you? And they beat them up just relentlessly. You can't go about it in your own strength, but God doesn't expect us to. Because a spirit-empowered mission will receive spirit-filled ministry in the face of spirit-rejecting opposition. Some of you, you're out there and you're on the front lines and you're pursuing the mission of God and you're trying to share this great news about Christ with people. You're trying to share with people, hey, look, God, God loves us. And the way he has shown that is he sent Jesus to live a life that you and I can't live. He did that because we can't do that. And then Jesus died in our place, taking what we deserved. And then he rose from the dead three days later, overcoming sin and death, rising to a new type of spiritual life. And that same type of life he now offers to you to me, if we trust in Christ, he offers it only through Christ. Some of you are out there trying to spread that message because you know and you're in contact with people who need to hear it, people who think they're beyond God's love, people who think they're beyond God's mercy. You, you, you know and you've grappled with and you've thought deeply about the ramifications of not sharing that message because as we looked at last week, we are under God's wrath if we are not in Christ. Those who reject Christ, he says, God's wrath, Jesus said this in John 3, 36, God's wrath remains on them. Some of you have thought deeply about that and you realize people are under the wrath of God and they need to hear about the good news through Christ, how God will bring them out from that wrath. And you're out there, you're doing it and you face opposition. You get people who tell you you need to stop because you're being too zealous. People in the church, perhaps, telling you that. Hey, you need, to, you need to stop being so zealous. You're gonna run people off. If you're being obnoxious, yes, stop. But if you're out there and you're faithfully, humbly, lovingly proclaiming the message of Christ, keep doing it. Because likely what's happening is the person who's trying to squash you is uncomfortable by your zeal because they know they should have it and they don't. For whatever reason. That happens. Or perhaps you're being insulted. Perhaps you're being, you're being rejected. Maybe it's, it feels personal. And look, I know it's going to feel personal, but you need to remember as you're on the mission of God, not personal, okay? The rejection is not personal. They're not rejecting you ultimately. Your battle's not against flesh and blood. It is against the spiritual powers of darkness. You are being rejected 
because they are rejecting Christ. And that's the message you're proclaiming. Don't stop. Instead, operate in the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Come under the control and the influence of the Spirit. Ask God, Lord, help me to be able to operate in your power, not my own. Some of you, that's where you're at this morning. Others of you, um, perhaps as you're listening to this, some of this probably just sounds straight up weird, like we're reading something from Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or something like that. And there's, listen, there's parts of the Bible that, that honestly, yeah, they do sound like that because we operate in a world where we just, we just think about what's in front of us and what we can see and touch. But listen, there are spiritual powers out there competing for your attention, competing for my attention, for our affections. And some of you have been falling right into that chasing the things that they're distracting you with, trying to find satisfaction, trying to find joy, trying to find love, trying to find life and purpose in something that was never meant to give it to you. It was only meant to, to point you to someone greater. God's not a, not a mean, unloving father. He's a loving father who, who gives his children what they need and what they want a lot of times, and he's approachable through Christ. And he has given you all that you need in him. And he never intends for you to go and try to find cheap substitutes in the things that we try to find substitutes in. He never intends for you to be found lacking in those things that you constantly chase after and then you find out it didn't do what I was hoping it would do. God never intended those things to do that for you. Instead, what he wants for you to understand is those things, the goodness, the pleasure, the joy that you maybe feel temporarily but then goes away, those are just flashes of what he could give you and wants to give you if you were to know him. And so those pleasures that you're chasing after, they might be distracting you from God. And God is saying to some of you perhaps this morning, stop chasing after those things and instead chase after me because I, I've got all that you need. And you might be thinking this morning, not me though, not me if you only knew. Yeah, you, because God knows. There's absolutely nothing that he is surprised by in your life. No secret is hidden from God. Nobody catches God off guard. In fact, he fully knew what and who he was getting when he sent Christ to die because it says in Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God fully knew who he was purchasing. So some of you this morning, perhaps God is calling you to respond to Christ. So let's take a minute. Let's go before the Lord. And as soon as we dismiss after we're done praying, we're going to dismiss. I'll have some people available. If you're on the prayer team, as soon as we dismiss, just make your way up here to the different places in the room, and uh, they'll be available for you to pray if you have some specific needs you want to pray about. So, Father, we are grateful for this word as we read about Saul and Barnabas and how you so specifically sent them out on a mission. God, you've sent all of us who are followers of Christ on a similar mission. And then, God, there are times where you take each one of us and you specifically narrow and focus that mission we're all called to make disciples, but to some God, you say, I want you to go to Mexico. I want you to go to Haiti. I want you to go among this people that are in this part of your town. I want you to go to this group of people who are part of this organization. Sometimes, God, you do that very specifically for us. So God, would you open our hearts to hear your spirit speaking to us if you're calling us to something like that? 
If you're, you're sending us and you've, we know you've commissioned us to make disciples, but God, if there's some, someone, some, some group that's specific, some, some people group that maybe has not been reached, but maybe today there's someone in this room who you're calling and you're raising up to send them to be missionaries to another place. Uh, across seas to a place they've never been before. Maybe they've been, and God, you start to stir up some desire in their heart for that people there. God, would you speak to them now? And maybe, God, there's others here who you're calling and you're raising up to be, to be a missionary among the people that are right in their backyard. And it's gonna take them learning some language. It's gonna take them learning some other cultural background stuff. But today, God, would you speak to them clearly by your spirit? And others, God, you're, you're calling them to a specific group of people in a workplace, a type of job, and you're saying, these are the people I want you to minister to. These are the people where I intend to use you. Speak to them, Lord. And God, as we follow after Christ, and we come up against spiritual opposition, help us to operate in confidence, not of our own, but of you and the spirit who you have made to live inside of us because he who is greater, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. God, the spirit that you've given to live inside of us is greater than any spirit that we will come up against. And so therefore, we should not fear as we operate in your power. So God, embolden us to speak the gospel. And God, do wonderful things as we do that. And then God, there's others here who perhaps you opened their heart this morning that they would respond to Christ and you've made known to them this morning the futility of the pursuit of their life and you're calling them to pursue Christ and said, God, would you speak to them that they might believe in Christ this morning? And as we depart from here, God, would you mark us with your grace, embolden us with your words and empower us with your spirit. We pray in Christ's name, amen, amen. We'll see you guys next week.